fantastic. Well, the first, I mean, the first topic, um, the first question is that we ask on Alpha is, who is Jesus? And perhaps it would be helpful for me just to give a very, very quick bit of background um, about my own sort of journey, if you like. Although I was brought up in a Christian family, and therefore I would have ticked the box on where it says, what religion are you? I would have ticked the box that says, um, what religion are you? Um, In actual fact, um, for most of my life, I haven't been a believer. I think I made up my mind from the age of about 10 that there wasn't a God. And after that, I was um, quite a sort of proud atheist, really. If someone asked me, I'd say, no, I'm an atheist. Don't believe in any of it. Don't believe in God. And um, I went on to, um, to, through school and university, and then on to a career in engineering, moved into industrial computers, got married to my lovely wife, Kirsty, who's here, who's, who you probably saw earlier, registering, um, registering us, and um, went into the sales side, moved into management, had two lovely children, got promoted to running the, the company, but nothing, nothing I did seemed to satisfy. There was always a hunger for something more that I couldn't satisfy. And then in March of 2000, on a business trip to South Africa, quite unexpectedly, while I was staying with a friend in the wilds of the Waterberg Mountains, right up in the north of the country, I had a very, I can only describe it as a very powerful spiritual experience in a small church out of the bush um, in, in South Africa. It had, it had a thatched roof, a dirt floor. It was a very African church. And, um, um, but I became aware for the first time in my life of the presence of God. And, and I just clicked. I thought, gosh, God is really there. He's really there. I didn't really understand what was going on at the time, but the friend I was staying with suggested that I did an alpha course. And so when I got home, I, 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 found, I looked around and I found an alpha course in Reading. And, uh, and I went on the alpha course. And during the time of the course, I came to the conclusion that the Christian gospel is true. That the accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection really happened. And I became a Christian believer. And over the last 12 years, I've been on the most exciting spiritual journey, and, um, which, is, which has totally changed my life in a wonderful way. And so, well, what made me so sure the Christian story is true? Well, before we actually delve into that, we're going to look at... Uh, a few years ago, we took a, a couple of years ago, we took a, a video camera out onto Broad Street in Reading. And we asked some people in Broad Street in Reading the same questions that we ask on Alpha. So let's just have a look at some of, the, some, of the, some of what people said. Oh, 
Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, and what does it mean to you, Son of God? Well, I'm a Catholic, so to me, uh, it means he's... I don't know, I can't do it. I want to say. I was saying, well, what does the Son of God mean to me? Yeah. It mean that, uh, oh, it's just Jesus and the Son of God. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, so you got a little flavour of what some of the general public uh, said when they were asked um, to say who they thought Jesus was. So what, what made, perhaps what made me so sure the Christian story is true? What's the evidence for the truth of Christianity? And I'm going to hit you with, I'll, I'll admit it now, I'm going to hit you with quite a lot of facts now. This, this evening, this first evening of Alpha, is, is probably the evening when you're going to get bombarded by by more facts and numbers and figures and stuff like that than any other evening, where, where perhaps it goes on to a more, as we look at things like prayer and how God guides us in future weeks, um, it becomes a much more sort of um, perhaps spiritual journey. But there's a, bear with me, because it's, because it's important, I think. So, some people think that Jesus was a mystical figure who never really existed. But in truth, most serious Scholars today, whether or not they are Christians, whether or not they believe in God or not, very few have any doubts that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. In fact, there's a great deal of evidence, both inside and outside the Bible, for the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. Here are a few examples. The Roman historian Tacitus speaks about Jesus directly. The Roman historian Suetonius speaks about him indirectly. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote this about Jesus. Jesus was a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was the doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men who receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And then he goes on to speak about Jesus' crucifixion and his alleged resurrection from the dead, and then he finishes up, by saying, and the tribe of Christians so named after him are still here to this day. So, these are heavyweight historians, um, both Jewish and Roman, um, who all wrote about Jesus. So there's good evidence outside the Bible that Jesus existed, but the majority of our evidence comes from the books of the Bible, which make up what we call the New Testament. The Bible is a collection of 68 texts written by a large number of different authors. And of course, all, all of those texts that were written before Jesus lived are gathered together in a collection that we call the Old Testament. 
The 27 texts that were written after Jesus lived are grouped together um, and are called the New Testament. And um, some of them are directly biographical. For example, the four Gospels you may have heard of, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And others refer to him in letters and other documents written by his early followers. Now some people, quite understandably, say that even the New Testament documents were written such a long time ago, almost 2,000 years ago, so how do we know that what the original authors wrote down is the same as what we read today? That's a good question. It's a very good question. But the answer is that we know with a high degree of confidence through a science called textual criticism and... There's a chap called F.F. Bruce, who was Professor of Biblical Criticism at the University of Manchester, and he wrote a book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? And basically, the way that textual criticism works is this. The shorter the time span between the original author, when, when the original author wrote the document, and the earliest existing copy of the manuscript that we have, then the more confidence we have about it. So, in other words, the nearer to the time that it was written, the, the, the first, the oldest manuscript we have, the more confident we have, at confidence we have. And the, more, the other thing is that the more copies we have um, of those ancient manuscripts, then the more confidence we have. If we just have one, we're less confident than if we have a hundred, say. Now, in your manual is a table, which I've reproduced in part on this slide. And if you look at the top of the table, you'll see, for example, that the first two documents, Herodotus and Thucydides, they are, of course, they are historical documents which are not from the Bible. They were both written in the 400s BC, before Christ. And the earliest copies we have are dated AD 900. So there is a time span of 1,300 years between the original and the oldest existing copy. And for both of them, we have eight copies of that oldest text. And yet, no classical scholar disputes their authenticity. We, we learn our history from these books. Or take Tacitus, written in AD 100. The earliest copy is AD 1100, so there's a 1,000-year time gap, and 20 copies. Again, no one disputes its authenticity. But when you come to the documents of the New Testament... We find they're written between 40 and 100 AD. The earliest copy is as old as 130 AD. That's only a partial copy. The earliest full manuscripts are AD 350. But it means that the time span between the authors and the oldest copy is only 30 to 300 years. Far, far less than any of the others And the number of copies is staggering. 5,000 Greek copies, 10,000 Latin copies, and 350 others in in other languages. All of these within 350 years of the originals. And F.F. Bruce quotes another expert, F.J.A. Hort, one one of the other world leading experts on textual criticism, who says, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the test the texts of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writings. There are no other ancient documents for which there is so much evidence that we know what the originals said. 
Um, Sir Frederick Kenyon, another leading scholar in the area, said, both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. So we have a great deal of evidence, both outside and inside the New Testament, that Jesus existed. But the issue is, who was he? Who, who was Jesus and who is Jesus? Few people today doubt that Jesus lived, that he was a real human being. Physically, like you and me. The New Testament tells us that, well, he had a human body. He got tired, he got hungry, he suffered pain. He had human emotions, love, anger, joy, sadness. He had human experiences. He was born as a baby. He was a child. He grew up. He made friends. He learned a trade from his dad, who was a carpenter. He knew bereavement. He lost a friend and and, and wept when his friend died. And, of course, he died too. So Jesus did exist. There's no doubt of that. He was a human being. But some people say that that's all he was. Maybe a great human teacher, a great religious teacher, but no more than a man. Perhaps like the comedian Billy Connolly, who once said, I can't believe in Christianity, but I think Jesus was a wonderful man. But the issue is, what evidence is there to suggest that Jesus was something more than a wonderful man? I'm going to, this is the only time I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to turn to, um, pick up your Bibles that are there. And we're going to turn to a, a part of the New Testament. It's page 983. Um, I'll just let you have a bit of time to find that. It's page 983. The background to this short passage that I'm going to uh, show you, um, is that Jesus has been living and, and, and moving around the country with his disciples, his followers. He's been teaching them. But this is the first moment when he actually challenges them and asks them what they believe about who he is. And it's on page 983, the top right, where it says, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And that that title, Son of Man, was a name that he gave himself. They replied, well, some people say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. These are two people who, who lived earlier than Jesus. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, who was one of his closest disciples, said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to affirm him. So clearly, Jesus' own disciples believed that he was more than a man. But were they right? You know, it is possible to be with someone and not realise who they are. Um... At the secondary school my son was, used to go to, in fact, he used to go just up the road to Presentation College, for those of you who know that. Um, he was there for his GCSEs and his A-levels. And they used to get the boys to show prospective parents around the school. And Tristan was really, really frustrated because he was never chosen to do it. And they loved to do it because they escaped lessons. They got out of lessons for a bit. 
And so he went to the headmaster. He said, look, you never let me show people around the school. And so a week later, he, got a, he, got a, he was called out of class, and the headmaster said, I've got a couple here. I'd like you to show them around the school. And so he was thrilled, and off he went. And, uh, and the couple, um, as they were going around the classrooms and having a look and all the rest of it, the couple turned to him and said, so Tristan, tell me, what, 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 do, what do the boys think of the headmaster then? And Tristan said, oh, well, they think he's a bit of an ogre, but oh, he's okay, you know. And anyway, they, they finished their tour. They got back to the headmaster's study, and, and, uh, and, and the headmaster said, how did it go? And the visitors said, oh, it was really, it was really interesting. And, um, and then the headmaster turned to Tristan and said, Tristan, I want to introduce you to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> he had just shown the headmaster's parents around the school. So he was suitably embarrassed, but... Um, uh, he didn't, he didn't get any punishment for it. <laughs> but anyway, the, what's the point of that? You don't always know who you're with. That was the point. At least not to begin with. And the question about that passage we've just read is, was Simon Peter right? He said, you are the son of the living God. Did he correctly identify Jesus as the son of God? And we're going to look at this in two parts. Firstly, who did Jesus think he was? And then secondly, what evidence is there to support what he thought? So look at, let's look at his teaching about himself. If you were to look at all of the other famous religious teachers, if you like, in the world, you'll find that all of them point away from themselves to God. All of them say, you must do this and do that and do the other, and then you will find God. All of them do. They all have a different message, but that's what they do. With Jesus, in, in contrast, uniquely he pointed to himself when he was trying to teach people about God. So he was in effect saying, look, it's through me that you discover who God is. And I said earlier on that in, that in every human heart there's a kind of hunger, and, that, and this is borne out by three leading 20th century psychologists. Freud said that people are hungry for love. Jung said that they're hungry for security. And Adler said they're hungry for significance. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In other words, if you want to satisfy that hunger, come to me. And many people are looking for meaning and purpose and fulfilment and direction in their lives. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it was like that for me, really, when, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ 12 years ago. It was like a light being switched on, or a, a blurred image being brought into focus. And it was as if I could see the world and my own life for the first time, really clearly. Most people are afraid of death and avoid talking about it. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. Mother Teresa was asked shortly before her death, are you afraid of dying? And she said, good heavens no, how can I be? Dying is going home to be with God. No, on the contrary, I look forward to it. So in summary, I suppose, other religious teachers say, do this, do that, do the other, that's the way to God. But Jesus said, I am the way to God. In fact, he said on one occasion, if you've seen me, you have seen God. So his teaching all pointed to himself as God. But also, he made some kind of indirect claims to be God as well. 
He claimed to be able to do things that only God could possibly do. For example, he claimed to be able to forgive people's sins, other people's sins, which is an extraordinary claim. Just supposing, imagine the end of the, the evening, um, I was to, I, if I was parked out there, imagine if I backed my car into your car out there in the car park. And, um, of course, if you were um, um, a very nice person, you might forgive me for doing that. But just imagine if I backed into your car and then Martin over there on the, the, the AV desk walked round here and said, Pads, I forgive you for backing into Jenny's car or whatever. I mean, she'd be outraged. She said, well, it's, uh, Martin can't forgive Pads for backing into my car. You know. But Jesus did that. It's exactly what he did. He also claimed that one day he would sit in judgment of the whole world, every human being who has ever lived, by how they responded to him and to other people with love. These words, had they been spoken by just a good religious teacher, would be absolutely preposterous, because they were indirect claims to do what only God could do. But Jesus also made quite direct claims. When he was asked directly, when he, after he'd been arrested and before his trial and his execution, he was asked directly, are you the Christ, the Son of God, by the authorities who were interrogating him? And Jesus replied, I am. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And the reaction of those listening was that he ought to be put to death because he was blaspheming for claiming to be God. So I don't think there's much doubt that Jesus claimed to be God. So the question is, was he right? Well, there are many people who make all sorts of claims about who they are, and some of them claim to be God. Sadly, some of them are in psychiatric hospitals. Others are leaders of cults who do awful things to their followers, or some of them have. They claim to be God, but they're not. Logically, if you think about it, there are only three alternatives. Either it's true, sorry, I'm going to start that again, I'll I'll change the alternative. There are three alternatives. Either it's not true, but the person doesn't realise it's not true, in which case they are deluded, or mad, or whatever you like to call it. Or it's not true, and they know it's not true, In which case, they're deliberately leading people astray. In other words, they're being deceitful and evil. And the only other possible alternative is that it's true. C.S. Lewis, who's the author of the Narnia books, and who became a Christian after looking into great detail at the claims of the Christian faith, said this. He said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So what's the evidence that Jesus was genuine, that what he said was true? 
Well, firstly, his teaching. The teaching of Jesus is widely regarded as the greatest teaching ever to have fallen from human lips. Things that we all know. Love your neighbour as yourself. Turn the other cheek. Do to others what you would have them do to you. They've become fundamental in our thinking about humanity. Many of our laws are founded on the words of Jesus. No one in 2,000 years has ever improved upon his teaching. Quite simply, they are the greatest words ever spoken. In fact, they are the sort of words we would expect God to speak. Could such teaching have come from a man who was either mad or bad? I don't think so. Jesus must have been the most extraordinary person to be around as well. Some people imagine that Christianity might be boring. Just imagine if you'd been around with Jesus. Going to a party. He went to a wedding party once and the wine ran out. He told them to fill up clay jars with water, to pour it out, and out came Chateau Galilee 25 AD. Going on a picnic with Jesus. He once went on a picnic with 5,000 people, except only one small boy had brought his lunchbox. And Jesus fed the whole crowd to bursting from this one boy's lunch. How about a funeral? Jesus went to a funeral of a friend called Lazarus. He told them to open the tomb. And they said, you must be mad. He's been, he's been dead four days. The stench is going to be absolutely horrible. And Jesus said, take the stone away. And they did. And he called his friend out. And his friend walked out. It was one of the most remarkable miracles um, uh, that Jesus did and drew crowds around him very near the end of his ministry. And on top of his miracles, he demonstrated extraordinary love for the outcasts of society, the downtrodden, the underprivileged. And ultimately, he demonstrated his love by being willing to die to save others. And his character. Millions of people who would not call themselves Christians, have been deeply impressed by the character of Jesus. Bernard Levin, the great newspaper columnist of the late last century, who said, for the 14,000th time, I am not a Christian, wrote this about Jesus. Is not the nature of Christ, in the words of the New Testament, enough to pierce the soul of anyone with a soul to be pierced? He still looms over the world, his message still clear, his pity still infinite, his consolation still effective, his words still full of glory, wisdom and love. Surely no one could suggest that anyone with a character like that was unbalanced or with a love like that was evil. Jesus also fulfilled a lot of prophecies that had been written about him long before he, he was born. In fact, no one else in the history of the world has had an entire collection of books written about them before they were born. But Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies that are written in the Old Testament of the Bible, written long before he was around. They even predicted his resurrection from the dead. And in fact, his coming back from the dead, as we call it, the resurrection, is probably the most important piece of evidence of all. And so we'll finish up by looking at that in a bit more detail. The resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. But how do we know that it actually happened? Well, there are a number of reasons. Firstly, three days after he was buried, the tomb was empty. 
the place where Jesus was buried, was very well known. And many theories have been put forward to try and explain what happened to his body. One was that Jesus never really died. That they got him down from the cross before he'd actually breathed his final breath and, uh, and he'd somehow survived the three days in the tomb and then got out of the tomb and, uh, and, and that's what's happened. That's how he came back to life. Well, I don't know if many of you saw Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, but he underwent a Roman flogging. Many people didn't survive a Roman flogging. Your body was torn half to pieces. But then he was crucified. He was executed. Nobody ever survived an execution. And then he was buried in a tomb with a one and a half ton stone across the entrance. So really, that idea doesn't really work. The second theory is that the disciples might have stolen his body and then went around convincing everybody that he'd risen from the dead. But if you think about it, it makes no sense at all. You see, after Jesus died, there was a bunch of very depressed friends and disciples of his um, who had seen him die and knew that it was all over. The the end had come. Um, But yet, they suddenly took off, went round telling everybody that Jesus had risen. And they underwent terrible suffering and persecution and even execution because they were saying that he'd risen from the dead. Now you can understand people being prepared to die for a cause they believe in, but it's impossible to understand that people would die for a cause they knew to be false. So that doesn't really wash. Thirdly, some people say, well, the authorities stole the body. But that is even less likely because the authorities were desperate to quash the rumours that Jesus had risen from the dead and all they would have had to do was to produce the body and it would have put an end to all the rumours. So it was not in their interest at all to do that. Yet another theory is that robbers stole the body. But actually, that doesn't make any sense either because the only thing that was left in the tomb were the grave clothes and they were the only thing that were of any value whatsoever to some robbers. But in addition to that, Jesus also appeared to many, many people after he'd risen from the dead. Over 500 people saw the risen Jesus over a six-week period, and he even ate breakfast, a breakfast of broiled fish, with some of his followers. You know, I actually know a guy called James, who, um, in fact, he was a merchant banker. But he became a believer after reading the bit in the New Testament where it says that Jesus had eaten broiled fish with his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Because he just couldn't believe that a ghost could eat broiled fish. One of the most compelling things, though, for me was when I was exploring faith about the resurrection was the absolute explosion of the early church. Despite opposition persecution, imprisonment, execution, the early Christians ran around everywhere telling everyone they could find this extraordinary news that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And I cannot imagine what would have sparked such incredible excitement and commitment and sacrifice other than the fact they had seen him because they were witnesses that he had risen from the dead. And finally, perhaps, just Christian experience, really. Countless millions of Christians down the ages have experienced 
coming into a relationship with the risen Jesus Christ. I would say that that's happened to me over the last 12 years. I would say, if it's not too presumptuous to say it, I'd say that I know Jesus, that I speak to him each morning and sometimes through the day. And I know the power of his presence in my life. And I know something, just a small bit, but something of the love that flows out of him. That's what convinces me that he's alive. So the overall evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is very extensive. And a former Lord Justice, Chief Justice of England, Lord Darling, said this. In its favour as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, both positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. That was Lord Darling, former Lord Chief Justice. Earlier, we said that there were three possibilities. One, Jesus was and is the Son of God. Secondly, he was mad. Thirdly, he was evil. As C.S. Lewis said, we are faced then with a frightening alternative. Either Jesus was and is exactly what he said, or else he was insane or something worse. To C.S. Lewis, it seemed clear that he was neither of these things. And so he concludes, However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God.